Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I want to thank all of our listeners all over. And especially this week, I want to do a shout out to our listeners in Sri Lanka, which is very cool, I must say. So if you're listening to this from that part of the world, please be in touch and let us know uh, about your interest in the show. And I really look forward to hearing from you. You can be in touch by emailing indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Also, if any of you are interested in ordering the webinars that I put together on my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com, for former cult members, for people who are in relationships with controllers, for their families and friends who want to know how to address the issue, how to help, how to get support for themselves, please go and order the webinars. And also, uh, there is uh, another document that you might be interested in, a video about why did I stay, why people stay for longer than is healthy in a lot of different situations. And also, if you're interested in the support group that I have that is on Zoom every other Wednesday night from 6 to 7.30 LA time, I would love to be able to have you if you feel like your situation fits for a support group for people who have been manipulated in relationships, in businesses, in recovery by a therapist, a coach, a healer, multi-level marketing, whatever. Please be in contact. Today on the show, I'm so happy to have my friend Stephen Hassan. Stephen Hassan, PhD, is a mental health professional and expert in undue influence tactics used by authoritarian leaders and destructive cults. His expertise includes harmful influence in cases of destructive religious and political cults, human trafficking, extremist and terrorist groups, one-on-one relationships, families, parental alienation, professional and institutional abuse, corporate and multi-level marketing programs, and harmful belief systems. There's such a list of all that he's done. And sometimes when people ask me, what kind of groups I've worked with, and I go through a list and they say, oh, that's it, (laughs) sarcastically. And that's exactly what I wanted to say here, Steve. That's it. It's an incredibly long, wonderful list. He is the author of four books, including Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, The Cult of Trump. And he is a translated author with books in 10 languages. His online video courses are Understanding Cults, The Basics and Understanding Cults, a foundational course for clinicians. Dr. Hassan is the founding director of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center, which provides training consulting, and support to individuals who are struggling to leave or recover from a cult and to families and organizations that are concerned about cult behaviors. He developed the BITE model of authoritarian control to identify control tactics and the influence continuum model to discern ethical from unethical influence. Steve began helping people affected by undue influence after he was deprogrammed from the moon cult, the Moonies, In 1976, at age 22, his 45-plus years of experience give him a unique perspective on the damaging effects of undue influence and exploitation by destructive cults. He is a frequently requested speaker and media interviewee, 
And Steve holds a master's degree in counseling psychology from Cambridge College and a doctorate in organizational development and change from Fielding Graduate University School of Leadership Studies. More info on Steve's courses, including The Basics in Understanding Cults, a foundational course for clinicians, and his books, including Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, are available at freedomofmind.com. It's my pleasure to have you here, Steve. We had a great conversation. And be sure to listen in when I'm also on his show. We get to continue the conversation then. Here's Steve now. It is my pleasure to be speaking with Stephen Hassan today. Steve, you and I have known each other for an unbelievable amount of time. And it is so nice when I see you and I talk to you, it's like coming back home. We have such a history and you knew my family and, you know, and, and I've gotten to know your family and stayed at your home and just hanging out with you when I was in college in Boston. Just we've been woven into each other's lives and working together for so many years. And there's such respect for your, your work and your tenacity after all these years of you know, being against the odds and having to kind of push through a lot of people who are kind of fighting against you throughout the ages. And I think also not wanting to accept your message and hopefully finally they are now or more so. And it must feel nice, even though it can always feel like pushing a boulder up uphill. But it's my pleasure to be able to talk to you in this way on this show. And I know I'll be on yours as well, but it's just, it's just fun. So Rachel, I, I am so happy to do this with you. I'm such a fan of you and your work. And yes, I, I was uh, with your dad Maynard way back when, as he set up the first cult clinic in the country at the LA uh, Jewish Federation. He was a great role model for for chutzpah, which is what I think you were trying to say I have. But there are many people who are our inspirations and our models. And uh, of course, your career has been helping people recover and educating the planet. And I'm so grateful that you're doing what you do and your podcast is wonderful. So I am delighted to finally be your guest and I'm delighted you'll be on the influence continuum soon. I know. And I'm so excited that you have a podcast. You have been the center point in this field really for for decades and continue to be. And I think part of the reason is that you found a way to help people understand things in new ways and incorporating new information and what we're seeing around us, what we're seeing in the world, what we're seeing in government, what we're seeing in terms of trends, some, you know, that are more alarming than others, but being able to put it into a bite-sized piece and using the bite model as a bite-sized piece. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like, (laughs) you put it into a bite-sized piece by having the bite model. But those takeaways where people quote you all the time is really a wonderful thing. And I know before we get into talking about other things, I want to make sure to mention what you 
are putting out in terms of content now that people need to know about, that people can really benefit from in real time and in very active ways, like the how-tos, how to understand this and how to work with it. So tell us a little bit about your dissertation and about your course before we start on anything else. So very briefly, around seven, eight years ago, I came to a realization that after 40 years of activism, things were getting worse, not better. And my realization was that the law itself is about 100 years out of date with what we understand about undue influence, which is the legal term. It's British common law for over 300 years, undue influence versus due influence, which is ethical influence. Of course, you know that I was helped out of the Moonies, deprogrammed in 1976, and it was Robert Lifton's eight criteria of brainwashing. He liked thought reform. Later, we talked about brainwashing, thought reform, coercive control, and all kinds of other names. And this was through the help of Alan Shefflin. I want to give credit where credit is due. Law professor emeritus, the fellow who wrote one of the first books on CIA MKUltra called The Mind Manipulators. And he said, Steve, we're not going to sell brainwashing in courts and to lawyers. Use undue influence. So I, I gave a presentation at a forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School called The Program in Psychiatry and the Law and talked about my frustration and because the law right now says if you're a minor or if you're an elderly person with dementia then you can be a victim of undue influence but everything in between the law says is a slippery slope and you know rachel and i know it's not a slippery slope there are very clear behavioral patterns to watch out for to identify because you know people call us and say have you ever heard of this group and we may not have heard of it but then we hear the story of how it operates and investigate it further and it's like walks like a duck quacks like a duck feathers like a duck so the idea was how do we change the law because if we can change the law we can change policy around the world so the people at this forensic think tank were like we think you're right. And one of the professors said, you need a doctorate and you need to do a quantitative study because all the other models are qualitative studies based on interviews or anecdotal. And the law doesn't respect that like it respects science, hard science. So this professor, Michael Commons, said, go get a doctorate. I'll supervise your research and I said, Michael, I'm 63. I'm too old. He said, I'm 77. Do you want to change the law or not? <laughs> it was like, got me. So um, long story short, he introduced me to a professor at Fielding, uh, Judy Stevens Long, who became my mentor. And that she embraced my aspirations and the whole, I love fielding. They're in Santa Barbara, a little bit north of where you are. It's mostly an online graduate program. They were one of the first in the country, frankly, for people who have real world experience, but want to have the academic scholarly credibility chops. And one of the first things, Rachel, they said to me in my first orientation was, we don't want you to earn a PhD. We want you to be a PhD. And I was like, be a PhD? And they're like, yeah, think like one, understand the language, like 
be the role of a scholar. And I'm like, I'm an ex Mooney from Queens and I have a master's in counseling, be a scholar. Okay, the, I, the word just didn't mesh, but I was like, yeah, but I have all these esteemed Harvard psychiatrists and psychologists and lawyers saying that they'll support me in this effort. And I'm like, yes. So Rachel, I've been bringing guests into this think tank to cover all of these different attributes of what we have been doing, whether it's multi-level marketing, parental alienation, just all of these different fields. So I've been educating expert witnesses you know, for seven years. And I just did a presentation yesterday on Larry Ray and the uh, Sarah Lawrence cult story. And uh, he's gonna be sent in, he's already been convicted of trafficking. Oh, and that gets me back to the law. So what I understood was that it is illegal to traffic, broad force of coercion. So uh, Robin Leisure Boyle, a law professor who is very interested in this field, wrote a paper on we should use trafficking law to go after cult leaders. And I'm like, yes. And that helped us put Ranieri in jail. It was like a many-year process of how to convey to prosecutors. And the prosecutors deliberately didn't want to talk about cults or brainwashing or mind control. They stuck with the trafficking law because, frankly, judges and juries like cubbies, you know, put it in a box that we, we know, and then it's easier and I'll further say the law changes, Rachel, when there's a, 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 a scientific community that agrees that something is a thing, which we're working towards, you, me, and a bunch of our colleagues, or precedent-setting cases. Either way, but that's what we're going to need to change the law. So in any case, I wound up doing this doctoral program, doing this dissertation where I took Lifton's model, Singer's model, Shine's model, trafficking law. Then I did my quantitative study on the bite model in the context of the influence continuum. And then I added Shefflin's social influence model, which is another game-changing model because he says, this is what expert witnesses can use as a frame to explain to judges and juries. Says, look at the influencee and their unique vulnerabilities. Look at the influencer. Do they have more authority? Are they a therapist or a priest or a president of the United States? Um, and the who, what, when, where, how. And the bite model is a really granular way of naming the undue influence techniques over the influence e and of course one of the big the big products or the consequences rather is is the person doing things they would never have done had they not met the influencer or the predatory group or organization so um i finished the dissertation in 2020 it's being read all over the world we're, we're looking at trying to get it translated into lots of other languages because i'm combining the brainwashing theories the thought reform theories lifton singer shine and shine by the way it turned out when i was at fielding He's like one of the most important figures in business. And I'm like, he wrote Course of Persuasion in 1961. His book helped me 
He introduced me to Kurt Lewin's unfreezing, changing, refreezing model, etc. And I tracked him down, sent him the cult of Trump. Actually, his son gave him the cult of Trump before I tracked him down. But I said, I'm doing my dissertation. I want to cite your model. You know, would you help? And he basically said, I'm really busy right now, but I'm so glad someone's operationalizing the models. And I included that in my dissertation because in the world of organizational change and development, Edgar Schein is like, wow. So anyway, back to the big rock is how to educate policymakers that we're not invulnerable. Our minds are malleable. We don't become adults when we turn 18. Neuroscience now says 25 to 26, just as two little scientifically proven things. You know, it's proven that corporal punishment causes brain damage and, and developmental injury. So how to combine and connect the science with what we know and frankly, Rachel, I used to say global climate crisis was the number one issue on the world and undue influence was number two. And I've changed it to undue influence is number one because I just came to understand when I was researching the cult of Trump just how much undue influence is being used to create confusion around oil and gas and all of the, the bad actors in the Cokes and the Putins and the, the Middle Eastern countries to try to distract people and create chaos and undue government functionality that want to regulate these fossil fuel companies. So unless we can teach everyone how to discern what's what's true and what's false and what's real and what's a, you know a psyop, a psychological operation, people are just going to be overwhelmed, depressed, tuning out, and feeling frustrated. And I don't know, but I don't feel like we have an option. We have one planet <laughs> and I feel like former members and experts like yourself, we have a very important message that the planet needs to hear and digest and realize, hey, it happens to educated, intelligent people from good families. It's not just weak, stupid people. And and now we have Marjorie Taylor Greene being appointed to the, to the Department of Homeland Security, and she's a QAnon person. And I I evaluated QAnon by the bite model, and I I said it was a psyop for everything that I researched and did a TEDx on it. And it's like what the f? So that's the legal piece is huge. I want to do programs for lawyers and judges next. You know, in addition to psychiatrists, psychologists, and other people who do expert witness. And the other big piece is, you know, I'm 68 and I know I'm not going to live forever. I'm a cancer survivor, Hodgkin's lymphoma, knock on wood. I'm okay. 
but I don't think I'm going to live forever. I know it. And we have to train the next generation of therapists. And what's the only way to scale knowledge these days is to make a course, put it online and make it accessible to people. So it took two years. I had the help of a social work professor because I've never done a curriculum for a course before. Phoebe Salidi, I'd like to do a shout out for her help. And uh, we got CEUs for psychologists, social workers, licensed counselors, marriage and family counselors. That's the project that I'm, I'm asking people to, uh, to check out. It, I'm charging money to try to pay for everything. And, and honestly, this is the last thing I'll say about my, my influence continuum podcast. I just don't feel comfortable at the moment uh, putting ads on any of my stuff because I think it will cheapen my message or my position as an expert witness on things. I feel the same way. I go back and forth with ads or sponsors. It's hard because you want to be taken seriously. You want to be seen as this person who is not doing it for other reasons. And, you know, in our field too, and with people watching what we're doing, we have to be very careful about what we advertise. And Oh, for sure. You know, it's this slippery slope. I know also as we're talking, we're going to be referencing different things like the bite model. Time permitting, we can explain those things, but I know they're available in your books. Well, freedomofmind.com, Rachel, if you just go to that website, learn about undue influence. I have a I have the influence continuum as a PDF you can download and a bite model you can download. And when people say, you know, uh, is it a cult? I say, you tell me. The more B-I-T-E variables, the more authoritarian the control is. So you you tell me. And it works easier if people self-diagnose than me being an authority figure telling people, yeah, it is. Right. Exactly. Right. Because then it's the anti-authoritarianism, you know, it's sort of shifting the power differential, which is a really important thing to do. It's a very meaningful thing to do in our work. And then people can decide for themselves or they can see it for themselves. And they can also disagree. They're free to disagree. What I find interesting about your work, and I think when people ask me, you know, well, you haven't been in a cult, why are you still doing this work? There is something about the macro and the micro that are interlaced, I think, for both of us here, that the micro is the the human level, the what happens to us, how in my life I've been influenced or and in, in I have a past with a, you know, a, a relationship with someone who's very controlling. And I've, you know, I can relate to sort of that, mm, that feeling of dread when you hear a, you know, the, the key being turned in the, uh, in the front door and wondering what's going to happen and what mood a person is going to be in. And, you know, there are things that we can relate to personally, but then it gets bigger when we think about, I think, our history, our ancestry, both Jewish, even though my last noun seems sounds like I'm uh, Arabic. I'm not, actually. Right. So I think in a very sort of primal way, groupthink raises the hairs on the back of our neck. I mean, just, you know, for good reason. And it's not in the too distant past, and it's still around us. And so there are a lot of reasons that I care about this and continue to care and have woven in different things like people who were in relationships with 
malignant narcissist where it's very similar, not sometimes completely the same, but also just looking at different political movements, but seeing how people get influenced over and over and over and wondering when that's going to change and if that's going to change or if that's just part of the human condition. And what we can do is be alongside the human condition saying, hey, let's point out what needs to happen here, what you need to look at and how you can be empowered and how you can be safeguarded. Because sometimes it does feel a bit like a runaway train. And how do we get ahead of it? And I think question that I had about when you were talking about the law and Alan Shefflin, yes, wonderful, wonderful person. He, he's he been a really good person to lean on at times when we've needed legal answers and guidance. Definitely. I do want to interrupt for one second, if I may, with Alan. He has been working on, with me to finish two chapters on the dark side of hypnosis because he's an expert, but uh, he's he's a gem. And yes, so many times I've said, so-and-so's threatening to sue me, or what do I do about this or that? And he was always giving, you know, pro bono support and advice. Mm-hmm. Right. The thing that sometimes it comes back to when you were talking about, you know, how they say if you're under 18 or if you're elderly and you have dementia and everywhere in between, somehow you're making a choice and you have these rights um, that the law needs to support. The law is missing the point 99% of the time. And we've seen the legal system get in the way. We've seen police get in the way. And I wonder what is going to help us get across to them about how we prove something, how we get this provable that someone is not making a decision for themselves. If a police officer gets involved with someone who is over 18, I think they do think that they're supporting their right to choose, but we're supporting their right to choose too. And we know it's been taken away. So what is going to help law enforcement see that it's been taken away. So the issue is informed consent and what my mentors at the program in psychiatry and the law have written about is informed consent isn't a document even that you sign or that you get automatically if you turn 18. Informed consent is a process of a person understanding what's going to happen and its positive and negative consequences and being in a position where they not only have information, but they have the psychological capacity to evaluate. And when you have, as you so well know, if you have a phobia put in your mind, like like the Moonies put a, a phobia of Satan and evil spirits in my mind, even though I was Jewish and I didn't believe in that, They took me to see the Exorcist movie, and then Moon gave a lecture in person telling me and hundreds of Moonies that this is what would happen to us if we left. And the fear of allowing an evil spirit to invade me propelled my cult identity to do thought stopping, to block out any negative doubts, because it was redefined as an evil spirit, not as a contradiction, moon just lied, or because something was going against my conscience, like I gave a dollar to a homeless man, and my leader 
yelled at me that I was using God's money and I was making it harder for this homeless man to, to go to heaven by giving him one of the Messiah's dollars. And my conscience had to get rewired into this bizarro authoritarian cult. But the, the key point is that people know about phobias, but they don't connect the dots that these groups are deliberately installing phobias or identifying existing phobias and and utilizing it to imprison people's ability to choose because that's what you were asking about informed consent now i've had some yeah, I just like i i'm 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 an activist cuz i can i've been blessed with you know resources and support networks and enough money from my family to keep this going and the thing is is that labor trafficking experts someone in your neck of the woods uh Paul Chang is the regional coordinator for the Department of Labor he loves the bite model and had me do a training for all the labor trafficking experts in the US government a uh, summer or two ago and sex trafficking experts like Rachel Thomas and Carissa Phelps who I helped to co-develop the Ending the Game 10-session program for trafficking victims by connecting the dots with trafficking. So to answer your question, I'll go back to we need a body of scientific support that this is real. And so what's happening right now with my doctoral work is this typical when someone's offering a new model everybody needs to try to falsify it and show it it isn't true and it doesn't work and i have a bu professor who volunteered out of the blue to do a content validity study on it completely independent from me but we need more people to keep doing research and show and and frankly i have so many variables in each of the behavior control information control thought and emotional control variables we really don't need all of those to determine undue influence like lack of informed consent and inability to leave without fear or harassment those are two biggies and the information control the ability to to uh, ask questions to talk to ex-members and critics and the ability to say no, you know, so we can, we, I think we can, we can reduce it to core factors, uh, even though I think it helps former members to go, oh yeah, my goodness, my group, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, this one, this one, this one, I did the whole model, Steve. We don't need that for the law, the law, but we need to have enough other masters and doctoral and psychiatrists and social scientists research to go, this is a framework. And as a scholar, I'll be the first to congratulate anyone who can come up with a better model that does the task. I'm happy to pass the mantle to someone else because I don't for a minute believe this is the, the final model for how to describe and understand human you know, interactions. I'm learning all the time, Rachel. All the I just read a book called The Knowledge Illusion, who heard of that? Well, it turns out cognitive scientists who did research saying that people actually believe things, but that they have no idea why they believe it or how things work. 
but they just believe it emotionally and that we are social beings. So we, we link to our networks and people we respect in our networks to fill in the gaps for what we actually don't understand. And this is science that, that they did, but it's a, another model that connects to this overall picture that we're trying so hard to uh, educate the public about. I'm wondering if you feel like there has been this sort of new trend that hasn't existed before. I mean, I know there's the idea of there's nothing new under the sun. And sometimes it really is just that it's repackaged. But there are also new stressors that have come into our world and our planet and our psyche, our politics, our health. And so I'm wondering what new things you're noticing that we should be aware of, that people should be actually wary of. Wow. So uh, lots of things to share here, but I want to just emphasize how we're in a very complex world where we are now wired through the internet and a lot of people are experiencing information overload. And you know, and I know that the brain doesn't do well when we're overloaded because we have a limited RAM in our working consciousness. And so I've been spending a lot of time since 2015 on online radicalization and actually contributed a chapter with John Atak uh, in an Oxford University press book, uh, Lone Actor Terrorism, with forwards by two FBI officials, former FBI officials. The whole thing about the digital space is new to human evolution. Humans have never been exposed to this environment, and we are, as a species, adaptive. That's how we've survived, right? But people are not being protected with their data privacy and platform regulations, and there are bad actors who want to impose their own authoritarian ideologies, whether it's neo-Nazis or fossil fuel interests or Putin or China or Iran or North Korea or Christian right, who Paul Weirich and Fourth Generation Warfare, uh, which I'm happy to explain. So people need to if they're hearing this, understand that I'm taking a position where we need to be in control of our own minds. Like we have to act that our minds are precious and like we want to be careful what foods we ingest because they may have plastics in them or they may have all kinds of toxic things. I was just reading consumer reports on dark chocolate bars, which I thought was healthy. And a, a bunch of them that I used to eat pretty regularly have lead and cat and 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 some other toxic metal, heavy metal in it. I'm like, thank you, consumer reports, but okay, uh, you know, but but the point is is information can have toxicity, and we need to be able to be in, you know, it's my mind. I should be in control of it, not look outside of myself to somebody else to tell me what reality is or what I'm feeling or what I should be doing with my life. And of course, with children, it's the parents' role to help children grow up and individuate to be their full, unique selves. 
But that's different if it's ethical parenting versus authoritarian parenting, where you are beating the crap out of the kid to believe your crazy, you know, beliefs and and want to keep you infantilized forever, right? So um, I can keep going, but I would I do want to mention I was asked to do the Cult of Trump, and I published it in 2019, and I was very scared to do it, but I thought how will I feel if I don't do it? And he has bad effects. It's that kind of thinking that maybe us second generation Holocaust survivors are like, what would I do? I, this is how when I grew up, I was like, what would I do if I was in Germany in the 30s? <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like this is happening right now with what's happening in Germany in the 30s. So I'm I'm in, you know, full activist mode because I don't want to regret for a minute that I go to sleep at night feeling like I could have done more that day. And on the other hand, I don't want to burn out because my body is telling me, take a break, exercise. And so I have to have this embodied mind consciousness of listening to my body and saying, okay, I know I have to do these many things, but I need to take time to restore myself. So I want a role model for folks too, and not just say, you know, do what I say and, and not what I do. But I really think people need to understand that what's happening today in politics this is the same group of people for the last 50 years with the long plan coming to fruition. This is not as Donald Trump is no genius who came up with this, not at all. But um, I was talking with Ann Nelson, the author of Shadow Network, who wrote a very important book on the Council of National Policy, which is that old. And guess what? The Moonies were founding members of the Council of National Policy. It was one of their people that became the founding editor of the Mooney's newspaper, The Washington Times. And I was in the room with Sun Myung Moon personally when he said democracy was satanic and we have to amend the Constitution and make it a capital offense for people who 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 violate our sexual rules due to our assigned marriages. I was in the room when he said we're going to fast for three days from the Capitol stairs because God wants Nixon to be president despite Watergate. I was in the room and my former cult was at January 6th. Sean Moon was there with busloads of people saying it's Antifa on Twitter. The Washington Times is saying it. So I have a I feel very personally like I have a due diligence to say I understand the mindset. I would have if they gave me an assault rifle when I was, you know, a fanatic Mooney and said, go and shoot as many cops as you can. I would have done it because I was not allowed to think negative thoughts. My free will was taken away by my cult identity. And I know this is the fact. I was I was in the room with Moon when he said, if North Korea invades South Korea, we're sending all the American members to the front lines to die so we can get the Americans in a ground war supporting South Korea. And I'm like, yes, father. Yes. Yes, father. You know, we're heavenly soldiers for God, father. And it's like, when I woke up from my deprogram, I was like, what the hell happened to me? 
like, what happened to my mind? So people say, well, how are you so passionate? It's been 47 years because it happened to me. Listen, people, this is real. And it happens to smart people from nice families with good values. And everybody has their vulnerabilities if they're approached at the right time or the wrong time is the right, the right time, right context, et cetera. And this is, this is a planetary scourge. And the media keeps misrepresenting the popularist movie movements in Brazil. I say BS. This is authoritarians on Facebook who gathered people's data, radicalizing people to think Bolsonaro should be the president no matter what, like it happened here with the Trump cult. Yes, exactly right. You know, you've spent decades, too, in this, you know, and you've seen trauma after trauma after trauma. And you've also seen people come out the other side to live thriving, wonderful lives. And that's what what gives us energy to see that we're helping people to reclaim their personal power and be be real people for themselves and for the planet. Yes, there are these moments. I don't know if you know other counselors, other therapists have these moments. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of therapists who are not harassed in the way that we're harassed. So we- it's always a compliment to be harassed. It means that the the bad folks know that we're being effective. So that's a that's a kudo for you, Rachel, that you're being harassed. Join the club. <laughs> Join the club, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, at my board, they're like, well, okay, Rachel, yeah, it's mm-hmm, yeah, it's happening again. And, you know, I know the people by name. And, and poor Alan Shefflin was getting a lot of my calls. Like, oh, okay, it's happening again. There is also, though, this other side where, like, for example, doing a support group, even if it's just speaking to people at a conference where they have felt so isolated, they felt so terminally unique and alone or shamed into silence or into the shadows after their experience. And then they get to come together and they get to nervously start to talk about what they went through and they get to see a room full or a Zoom full (laughs) of nodding heads. Yes. Oh, yeah. That is exactly right. Oh, and then some. And there's just there are a lot of tears of relief, finally. People who get it. And I'm not going to be judged. And people also go to other therapists who just have not been schooled in it, where they have been told, well, why did you stay or or asked, you know, or questioned? And how come you didn't see it for what it was? And how you know, you're smart, how come you were gullible? All the things. I think that has kept me going to a great degree because there is something about knowing the the nuanced needs of a particular community where you feel like you don't want to abandon the community once you feel like you get it to a certain degree in a way that many other people might not just because they haven't had the exposure. And I've learned almost everything that I do from people in the field like you from and also from my clients. And the people who are really nervous about things that other therapists might not understand, like showing up late to something and being so panicked that they're going to be shamed, that they're going to be berated, that whatever else, because that was their experience before. That and then again, going to the the macro, the looking at looking at our world and seeing how this is interwoven into the psyche. So if it's interwoven into our psyche, then it's interwoven all over the world. I am really gratified to know 
terms of my podcast, when I have listeners in Poland, in Germany, and Lithuania, and I think someone named Rachel Bernstein has a podcast that people are listening to, basically about groupthink in places, right, where, you know, towns were liquidated, but that it speaks to them and your podcast speaks to them. And it, it it's important that it does. It's really important that it does. So, you know, sort of toggling between the, the big picture and the human element of it. You know, when we're talking also about the online presence, the idea that people are in their living rooms, in their bedrooms, on their phones are getting tapped into. I wonder if in all that you've researched about this sort of digital part of our world now, what can you guide people about what to watch out for when they're noticing something online, when they're noticing a sales pitch that would make your antenna go up right away? What can they be watching out for? Because it's usually very glossy and practiced and they're lovely filters and music online. You know, there's a sort of a multi-sensory approach that you can get online and it's perfected. But what are you noticing that people should be watching out for when they go to a website, when they're getting an email from someone they might not know, but with a message that really is intriguing them? So many uh, ideas come to my head. I think that I want to start by saying if something is legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny and that I encourage people to add pauses in things, like especially if they're thinking of going to a new thing or reading a new book or a new video that's being suggested, to take a moment and pause and say, who is this person? And when it comes to legitimate people, they typically have websites, they typically have credentials, like you're a licensed mental health professional, as am I. We have track records. We our, our truth is important to us. Our reputations are important to us. And you know, and I had to learn this too. I, I especially on social media. Don't just retweet things because they has a headline that sounds like something you believe because I know about confirmation bias. And propagandists like to take a kernel of truth and then embed a bunch of crap and get people to spread disinformation, right? So the thing is to stop and pause. If, some, if there's a hot news story, I wait to see is the Wall Street Journal covering it or the Times or the Economist or somebody that I that has some journalistic, you know, principles or at least are supposed to. So that's understanding the source. And with I, I was just um talking about Larry Ray the other day, and he claimed to be a CIA agent who had all of these extraordinary, no one checked it out. The one thing that was real was he was the best man of Bernie Carrick, the corrupt New, New York police commissioner that Donald Trump pardoned. But if somebody's legitimate, you should be able to get them to prove it. It's not on us to disprove their claims. It's on them to prove their claims to us. And I like to ask direct questions. Now, a lot of bad actors will lie very convincingly. But if I've asked the question, 
and they lie like the Moonies when the women were flirting with me. And I said, are you students? Yes. I didn't check that out. They weren't. Are you part of a religious group? Oh, no, we're just a group of students, right? But at the point that I was being driven at night into the Tarrytown facility for a workshop I didn't know was being planned, I said, wait a minute, Unification Church, I'm Jewish, I'm not interested in workshop, no one ever told me. And besides, you said you weren't religious, what's the Unification Church? Like that should have been, but they turned it around on me. Are you closed minded, Steve? You're not open to new experiences. Do you have an issue with Christianity? Now, what I tell and why I share the story is people can hear this. And I'm telling you, it it was freezing cold. It was snow on the ground, February late at night. I didn't have my car. Big mistake. I should have had my own wheels. And this was all way before cell phones. Now people at least have cell phones if it operates. But I should have just demanded to go and hitchhike. Like they were like, oh, the van's not going back tonight. We'll go in the morning. And then the morning came and the van was gone, supposedly. And at that point, I should have known and I should have been more assertive and not allowed the the pressure of the environment and the sleepless night because I didn't sleep and have humility, have humility that you can get your brain hacked without you realizing it. I just did an interview, Rachel, with Wesley Clark Jr., the son of the Wesley Clark, and it was a podcast called American PsyOps, and Wesley was went to Standing Rock to oppose the fossil fuel mercenaries who were trying to open the pipeline on indigenous land, and he was subjected to psychological warfare operations. And I listened to the podcast and I was like, sounds like mind control to me. So I I did an interview with him. Well, it'll it'll be coming out soon. But this is real. And and we have former military intelligence people who are saying, I used to do psyops. Here's how it works. I mean, that and that's how I learn. I'm not making any of this stuff up. And so in terms of protection, I also want to recommend people have trust pods. And what I mean by that, people that you trust who have no agenda and they don't necessarily share all of your political and religious beliefs, but where you can say, I'm reading this and my mind is changing. What do you think of this or such? So that people are not isolated because the people who are isolated are going to be more easily captured by bad actors online. But um, I think inoculation, you know, what we're doing is inoculating people by sharing stories about all these different types of contexts of undue influence. People are hearing the story and hearing people who are really smart and, and capable who got hurt. So hopefully this is going to help them if something comes their way where a little light bulb goes off. And here's here's a point that I know you're going to agree with. It's like if your gut says, eh, I don't think so, there's something wrong with doesn't smell good, not critical, not conscious necessarily, but just an intuition. Listen to your inner voice. Please, uh, every single person I've ever worked with in 47 years, when I asked them to go back to some of those early moments 
They all report a moment where they were like, I thought this was a cult or is it this person's crazy or QAnon is crazy. It's like, go back to that moment. That was correct. It is crazy. So go back to your body, go back to your core sense of self and trust the people in your life, especially family and childhood friends. And then there are folks who are trustworthy guides like yourself that you can email or make comments and go, hey, Rachel, ever hear of Andrew Tate? Actually, yeah, you know. Bad dude, you know, malignant narcissist, trafficker. We need to be a village. We need to come back and be nice to each other and kind to each other and respect each other, even if we don't agree on everything. And I don't know any intelligent person that agrees with everything that another person says or believes. But we need to have good goodwill and respect and curiosity. So I want to I want to emphasize that if something's legitimate it will stand up to scrutiny the burden is on them to prove that they're god or that they're so special or they're a prophet of god or an apostle prove it you know to us and speaking in tongues is not proof because you remember victor paul wellwell in the way right they do classes to teach you how to do this I hope I'm not stepping on any Pentecostals who are not in the New Apostolic Reformation cults, which is one of the major bases of the cult of Trump was the NAR people. But the the thing is, that's not proof or burning in the bosom for Mormons. Like, that's not proof. Yeah, but I have a burning in my bosom. I say, well, let me explain. I studied hypnosis. There's a thing called hallucination. You can hallucinate visually, auditorily, kinesthetically, olfactory, or gustatorily, the five senses. And with the power of suggestion in the right context, people can feel things, see things, hear things that aren't there. And it seems real because our minds are powerful, but We have imagination and we can be unduly influenced if someone has a bad, a bad intention or agenda on us. You know, I'm remembering now a video that I haven't seen in a long time, the Heaven's Gate video of the people who spoke before, you know, the fateful day. Where they were murdered, you mean? When they were murdered, right? Having their lives taken away and they're sitting there talking about how the world is a scary place, it's an ugly place, and it's an unfriendly place. And right behind them are trees and flowers. There's a butterfly going by. And I kept wanting to say to the video when I first saw it, turn around. Look, there's beauty, the blue sky, the fluffy clouds. You're next to a friend, which means it's possible for you to have community. You're in a beautiful setting and you're talking about the ugliness of the world. There is this dystopian image that's come down over your eyes. But if you're able to take that lens off and just look, you'll see what's possible and what you've actually created here for yourself and what has been created for you that's been provided for you. There's so much about people not seeing what's in front of them or it being taken away from them, which is such a crime. It's interesting because I know that you're good at sort of putting ideas together and again, and sort of packaging them. I haven't quite done this yet, but I, I've i been thinking about this idea, this idea of the gut, that when people get in 
to any kind of system of control, manipulation, undue influence, I feel like there's this dual track, one that's obvious, one that's not. The obvious one is here, this is what we believe, and this is your community, and these are our teachings, etc. The one that's not as obvious is the messages of if you disbelieve it, something bad will happen to you. You can't have negative thinking. The way you're getting disarmed and for lack of a better term, handicapped and you're, while you're being freed by these messages, according to them, your hands are being tied tighter and tighter for you being able to protect yourself, speak up, feel okay about noticing what's wrong feel okay about having a difference of opinion, feeling safe about leaving, all the things that are happening simultaneously. And again, on this dual track, one invisible, you know, one not. And I think if that part can be made visible, the the parts that are really going to keep you stuck there and are going to make you feel like you then have to endure something that you shouldn't have to endure and for you not to sort of realize why. I would love for that to be part of a curriculum somewhere, but also just listening to the gut. There's so many people I talk to who say, not only did I have kind of an icky feeling, but the um, people will say, I even... Uh, like with someone who took over their lives. I remember crossing to the other side of the street when I saw this person coming because they gave me the creeps. Suddenly then uh, I'm building a life with this person. I'm living with them. I'm having children with them and they are my everything. How did that happen? And I think it's the, if you question, if you think negatively, that's you being something or that's Satan or that's you never uh, being open to new things. That's you not challenging yourself to look at people in a new way and being more like God in that way, et cetera, et cetera. Justification after justification to ignore your gut. Yeah, well said. I'm now shifting my view as I grow older to that we are embodied minds and the notion is to overcome the mind-body split that has perpetuated for so long. But to really, and, and you know, things like the body tells the score and Peter Levine's work, etc. They're all saying, look, we're, we need, we are our bodies and we should listen to our bodies and we should, you know, be in harmony with this this is part of us. And so at the moment, Rachel, I'm thinking that we have a gut brain or mind and a heart brain or mind, and we have a critical thinking, you know, system two thinking uh, part, and we have an unconscious intuitional part. So these two and the two body pieces, if someone's real and if a group is good or someone that you're going to commit your life to, they should all be like systems go. We've checked out their parents and their childhood and interviewed their childhood friends and said, oh, Rachel's a great person. Oh, what a, you're so lucky. You want to hear things like that and not oh, I don't talk to my parents and I'm not in touch with any of my childhood friends. Warning, warning, <laughs> warning, warning. Why don't you have any friends? And why are you not in touch with your own family and et cetera? But uh, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I sometimes I have to confess, I'll walk, be walking on the street and I see Jehovah's Witnesses recruiting 
and I have five minutes, I, I, I'll go over and just say, hi, how are you? And I'll do a mini, what I call mini intervention. And, and with many of them, they don't even know about Raymond Franz, who is on the governing body, who left and wrote a book called Crisis of Conscience. So I might go there or ask, so how do you feel about the cover-up at headquarters of all the pedophiles? that have been hurting children, all those. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, check out Barbara Anderson or check, you know, go and do this just to plant the seed, but friendly, not attacking warm. Or I start with, uh, you know, have you ever heard of the Moonies, or the mass wedding people and the Korean guy who claimed to be the Messiah? And if they have, then I give them a little spiel, to use a Jewish Yiddish term on that, give them a little spiel about how I turn my back on my family and my values, etc. But I try to operate. I am my my brother and sister's keeper. I don't want to be sexist. I am my humankind's, you know, person. If I see somebody yelling at a kid and abusing them in a store, I don't just pretend it's not my business. I, 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 I try to win. You know, I know I might get punched in the face, so I'm a little bit careful. But I'm I'm like, excuse me, I see you're very upset and I see your child is even more upset because you're upset. And is this really the kind of parent you want to be? It's a question. It's not an accusation or something. And then I'm going to just say the power of a kindness or a smile or opening a door for somebody. It makes me feel good when I do that. And it makes them feel good. And maybe they'll reciprocate and pass it on to someone else. That's what we need more of. Less hate, more love. Less lies, more honesty and forthrightness. Absolutely right. I think about the the amount of people I'm sure the, together we've talked to who say that they stayed involved in a relationship or a community because they didn't have that sense of feeling taken care of outside of it. Um, even if it was a conditional kind of relationship there and they had to prove their worth to be taken care of, still, it felt good. I'm remembering now, there's a story I told on the podcast, but it was, I think, probably a couple of years ago. I was giving a talk at the Center for Inquiry, I think. One of the times that I was there, there was a Scientologist who was in the parking lot writing down the license plates, you know, like they used to do at our conferences, writing down the license plates. And he was a young kid and people were yelling at him, like, go away, stop harassing people and um, trying to get their information. And I was noticing that he was so focused on what he was doing that he almost got hit twice. People were backing out of spaces, but he was so focused on writing down people's license plates, that there were these narrow misses. And so I yelled to him and he yelled back thinking I was yelling. And I said, I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling to you. <laughs> um, I think as a mom now, because you've almost been hit twice by a car, can you please be careful? And he didn't know what to do with that. And I wasn't expecting that I was going to cause like this tilt. <laughs> like it wasn't going to compute. And he was ready for battle. And I just didn't want him to get run over because he's somebody and he's probably somebody's kid and he's doing something for this greater good. And they don't care about him. They're not watching to make sure he's safe. 
And they're sending him out there for this mission, for this cause where he's going to sacrifice his safety and hopefully not his life for this, but it was going to happen potentially. And I said, please be careful. And he stopped and like, he didn't quite know what to do next. And then I thought this was a more powerful moment than I was expecting, but I just didn't want him to get hurt. And so there's this human part of it, of the work, you know, feeling really ultimately taken care of. Like when you were with the Moonies, you weren't taken care of. You were, you were sacrificing your health. You were up till all hours. You were out in all elements and, you know, in the winter. You're completely right. I was not taken care of. And your story is so spot on. And it brought up a story, the only story I can share from my Mooney time of a kindness like that, where I was fundraising, it was the middle of the summer, it was 90 degrees, I was sweating, I was thirsty. And a man said, you look really thirsty and hot. Can I buy you a cold drink? I had one of those moments because I had been programmed, the outside world was evil, right? And someone was recognizing me and offering me a kindness. And I accepted thinking, oh, you know, God is moving this person. It will give them good good brownie points in the spirit world. So I rationalized it in my moony head. But then as I'm drinking, he said, I'm curious, when was the last time you talked to your mom? And I said, it's been a while. He said, come on over here. What's your number? And back in the payphone days with the circle things, I think it was a dime or a quarter. Dial your home number. And I did it. And I talked to my mom. But this story was like a piece that connected to my real self, but also was a mini intervention. And your story reminded me. And I predict that young man is out of Scientology, I hope. And if asked, he will remember you before that moment of kindness saying, I'm a mom and I'm worried about you. Good deed, I want to say. Really, it's powerful. (laughs) What happened when you called your mom, when you got her on the phone? What was that conversation like? Do you remember it? I don't remember it. I just know how happy she was to hear. And, you know, I was programmed that my family was my physical family only, that Moon and his wife were my true parents and all of this other crap. And so I wasn't coming home to visit for birthdays and holidays and Father's Days and Mother's Day. This was completely unlike me. But it was a moment. It started with just someone seeing me as a human being suffering in the heat and wanting to do a good deed for me. I want to, if if you don't mind, I know we're running out of our time, a lot of time, and it's such a pleasure to re. to do this with you. I can't wait till you're on my podcast, but I do want to just come back to a very central topic that I think is so vital. So um, it comes back to the subject of mental health professionals not properly being trained to diagnose people coming out of these undue influence situations, misdiagnosing them, and doing mistreatment on them to their great harm with the best of intentions, but out of their ignorance. And I did a a case with a woman from the Boston Church of Christ. And by the way, this is a group that started in in, uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. I did my first case in 1981. It's 
now in the news again because of lawsuits that are happening. But I did a case, uh, Rachel, that I feature in my course as an exemplar of what not to do with somebody. Because here was a woman who was in it for 13 years. She was a leader. Her husband got out first. It was a very, uh, it was an arranged abusive marriage. Husband got out first, tried to forcibly get her out because, you know, it's a cult where men control the women, supposedly. Anyway, she she leaves the group and is suicidal and doing self-harm. And she gets misdiagnosed as schizoaffective and borderline and a million other things. And she's in and out of psychiatric hospitals for 11 years with 19 medications and a brilliant woman, currently a PhD married with two kids, I will add, happy ending of the story. But I have a video of her. I was asked to do a training at Judith Herman's uh, 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 violence uh, program, one of the preeminent psychiatrists uh, healing and uh, trauma and recovery. Anyway, she begged to come and speak to the clinicians. And of course, you know, we're not supposed to encourage our clients to do other contexts or whatever. She begged me. I said, ask your your psychiatrist and your psychologist. I asked Judy Herman. Everyone was like, we think this would be really good to do. So I have a video with her permission in my course. Her face is blanked out, but she talks about all the mistakes that clinicians made. Like, for example, get this. At one point they said, uh, why don't you call your friends at the church and get some support? They didn't even Google They didn't even ask her, what's the name of the group that you are calling a cult? And what makes you think it's a cult? They didn't go there at all. Or she was she was an artist. Uh, She worked for Disney, brilliant artist. She was drawing these demonic red pictures and they're telling her, why don't you draw something nice and pretty instead of asking her? That's interesting share what you're so it so i use that as an exemplar in this course that i've developed for clinicians to say listen this is you really need to identify properly diagnose don't rush to give medication to this population and understand it's a dissociative disorder and it requires very specialized treatment and if you don't have that training get supervision or refer Like, this is really important because guess what? How many millions of people believe in QAnon still and other cult ideologies? It's rampant. And my interaction with therapists, they're like, oh, I have an uncle who believes that. Oh, I've cut him off on social media. And I'm like, cutting people off that you care about is pushing them deeper in the rabbit hole. Say, I miss you. I love you. I respect you. Help me understand how you believe this and and apologize if you called them names or tried to be heavy handed to get them out. In other words, we have a mental health crisis. I think you will agree. And, and mental health professionals are burning out because they don't know how to handle the uh, level of trauma that everyone's experiencing now, largely from the internet. So I'm now remembering. I had a woman contact me recently who is part of the the Kaiser network and well it has a lot of 
good things going for it. In this particular situation, she said she had been involved in a cult and she asked someone there to see if they could get her connected to a Kaiser therapist or a psychiatrist, social worker, someone who could help her. And so they connected her with someone who was Wiccan, who had as part of her, I don't know what, why they knew she was Wiccan, but I guess that she's a, she is Wiccan and she is a social worker. And she said, why did they put me in touch with someone who's a, who's a witch? Now that was Kaiser sort of fielding those calls and deciding that was what was going to be helpful. Now, what that meant to me was there aren't enough people who are out there saying, this is what I can do and this is how I can help. So the whole systems are really at a loss at times for having resources. So they go to the closest thing they can find, which is often, you know, a miss, hit or miss, but mostly miss, even though this person was lovely, but she wasn't equipped to, you know, to, to help. What I think is really problematic too, is when people wind up in the hospital and then are diagnosed and then they are put on medication. I think there are so many diagnoses that are situational diagnoses that don't get put into play that need to be that I think that it's almost like that's where my feeling is. That's where someone intervening on someone's behalf needs to start. They need to start with it being potentially situational and then see if there's a history of it, if there are other reasons that we need to give that person the diagnosis, but give the person a chance to just land and breathe and get used to just being in yet another environment where they're being kept from having rights and freedom and settle into that. And I don't know what you think is going to, is going to do it. I mean, I love that you are able to use this person's experience in real time, in real life to show all the, the mismanagement and the misdiagnoses and really the the awful things that happen and how far afield someone can be pushed from what is true about them and that and someone coming out of a cultic system too might be all too willing to adopt the next diagnosis or the next truism about them without questioning it because you're in a position of authority there's so much wrong with the system yeah, and this woman got better to a certain extent, but they were had her in a DBT program, dialectical behavioral therapy, and she said it was triggering her because of shunning from the cult, because then that system, you need to not interact with the person if they break a rule. And, you know, so, but... Uh, I where I thought you were going to go with your story about Kaiser and the Wiccan is another problem that I'm sure you'll agree with, with me on, which is if people are very strong Christians, very strong Jews, very strong Muslims, they want to get people help people get out of cults into their version of religion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, or atheists who have, are like religious atheists who are like, you know, not allowing for spirituality. So that's a whole nother piece. I've got to run right now, but this is such a pleasure. And we, I look forward to our next conversation on the influence continuum. And I look forward to seeing you again in real life. <laughs> that would be lovely. I know we're at different coasts, but yes, it's so good to talk to you. To be continued. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, my pleasure. 
and and uh, continued success. Great, great podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. One more thing before you go. As you can tell, Steve Hassan and I have a good time talking to each other. It's so nice. There's such a nice long history. And uh, he's been in my life for, I'd say, about 40 years. And it's been lovely. We've worked together. We've worked on cases together. We confer. We refer people to each other. What I want to be able to get back to when he was talking about, you know, during the time of COVID, people had pods where they could hang out with people who they could trust to a certain degree that they were healthy and hadn't been exposed to a lot of other people. And were kind of uh, only saving their exposure for people who they were exposed to on a regular basis to sort of keep the opportunity for transmission of something dangerous down. He talked about how people also should have pods of trust. And I loved that term. I think it's so true. Just because someone is a friend doesn't mean you can necessarily trust them. Of course, then you might want to call them something other than a friend. But There are people we know who we can share things with and other people we can't. But what I think is interesting, too, is that just because someone is in, let's say, a religious organization doesn't mean you can necessarily trust the people there because people are people and their nature is their nature. And that just might not be a value of theirs and it might not be what they have enough self-control for. So I wanted to take a moment just to talk about trust and how you find out that someone is trustworthy. And of course, these are not perfect by any means, because people can sometimes in moments of weakness or in need of attention or something, share things that they shouldn't and share things they might not have otherwise and might betray you, which happens a lot in a lot of cultic situations. People are pitted against each other and people betray each other. And people also learn to betray themselves, to not listen to what's true, to not follow their instincts because they're taught not to. But in terms of just sort of a general sense of who could be in your, as Steve says, pod of trust, you want to make sure that the people who you are going to entrust with your information or with your emotions are people who you see are there for you and there for other people as well. The person who is kind to someone else, the person who is kind to the waiter, the person who gives in a way that makes you feel good about their heart a person who will ask you how you are and your relationship is not just about you fulfilling their needs so that they can talk or they can feel special or important. What's also true is that these are people who will listen and they'll remember to the best of their ability. They care about what you say. It matters to them. It matters to them how you feel. It matters to them that They may have interrupted you in the middle of a story, but they'll come back to it and say, oh, I'm sorry I interrupted you. And can you finish that story? Because they were really listening and they want to know about your world. If you think that something is important enough to tell them, someone who's trustworthy will think, well, then it's important enough for me to listen. The other thing is about gossip. Now, cults and a lot of groups you know, large group awareness trainings, multi-level marketing, a lot of these groups are very gossipy. Information is used as a means of control 
And if you go back to Steve Hassan's bite model, the I in bite is information, which is one of the methods of control. And so you want to make sure that information is not being used, but rather that the person seems grateful that you entrusted them with it, and then they won't do something wrong with it and use your information for their own gain. Also, that they don't continuously ask you for things. So the relationship isn't about you fulfilling their needs. They don't all the time ask you for money or ask you for favors. They don't befriend you because you have a truck and they're about to make a move and they need the truck or they need you to drive the truck. There isn't an ulterior motive. It really is about you. The other is that friends, people who are trustworthy, will tell you things honestly. They will be truthful with you. They'll tell you the facts. Even if they know it might bother you, they'll find a gentle way and a direct way to say something because they care. Now, again, there are some people who will use that as an excuse to be cruel and will say, well, I'm just saying this to you because it's true and because I care, and it turns out that they're just being mean. But if, for example, someone finds out that the person you're dating is not being faithful and they saw them out with someone else, they will let you know if they know that that would matter to you. And also, if you know that you would feel that they weren't being a friend if they didn't tell you. They also will show gratitude. You'll hear thank you, which is a lovely thing. And they will want to give back. And it's not that that's the requirement that you keep absolute even score, but it is a wonderful thing to know that someone says, and what can I do for you? There is something else also about someone who's trustworthy where they're not going to be constantly reading into things. Do you know people who have that personality where they seem to know better about what you really meant about something than you? And usually it comes with this kind of tone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I get it. I get where you were going. I got the message. And you're thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. But there is this overall suspicion and like they've got your number but they usually don't. This is usually from their own past, their own stuff, and it gets very tense very fast. And no matter how much you try to get out of it and say, I really, I swear, I didn't mean anything by it. They just don't believe you. They're not necessarily a friend. They're engaging you in replaying something that they're probably feeling they need to replay so they can be right, so they can be on top of things. It's a power play more than a friendship. They will also do something for you, but not expect something in return. They won't be doing it for that reason, so that you feel indebted or so that you pay back. And something that is really important is that if you say no, they'll follow that. And if you say yes, they'll follow that. They respect your boundaries. They respect your words. They don't fight against them. And they will be happy that you set them. And they'll probably have their own and expect that. But one of the more important things, and I want to end with this, is that people who are trustworthy are consistent. Their stories don't change. Their behavior doesn't radically change. They are who they are. And if they are one way to you and another way to someone else, you can't necessarily know who they really, really are. And if they are mercurial and change on a dime and you don't know what you're going to get, what kind of intensity or punitive behavior or giddy behavior, if it's just that you don't know and you can't expect and assume that things are going to be the way they were and that things are going to be comfortable in the way they were, that's someone who you might not be able to trust in that 
you never know if you're going to be made to feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And a lot of cult leaders are mercurial. A lot of them are narcissists, and so they often get this narcissistic injury and feel injured, and they need to get you back. And a lot of them haven't learned how to fully modulate their emotions and deal with their emotions, and they just let people have it. But also, from one day to the next, the story might change. There are stories of being war heroes in the past. Well, the details might change. The story of all the things they've invented that they might not have invented, that might change. And so you want, with something that is trustworthy, you want consistency. You want, to a certain degree, predictability. It's awesome if someone wants to be spontaneous, but that's different than being unpredictable. Spontaneity is fun, but being unpredictable puts you on edge. And so when you want to know that someone's trustworthy too, you want to think, how do I feel in their presence? Check in with yourself. See if your stomach is in knots. See if your shoulders get tense. See if you are clenching your jaw. See if you're holding back on telling them things because you're intuiting that you should. So thank you very much to Steve and for all the work that he has done and all of the education and all of the work he's going to continue to do. And I look forward to talking to him again sometime soon. And I'm so happy you got to hear him today. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.